Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends! In today's episode, we are talking to Dr. Julian Cornebiz, Director of Research AI for Good at Element AI and one of the keynote speakers at the Anthropology and Technology Conference 2019. The conference is happening on October the 3rd in Bristol, UK and has its main theme, Championing Socially Responsible Artificial Intelligence, or AI for short. In today's episode, Julian shares some considerations on what makes AI good or bad, reflections on the ethics and drive for purpose of the humans that build technology, his experience working alongside anthropologists and sociologists as part of Element AI's team of AI for Good, the value of diversity in teams and how to prevent replicating bias with artificial intelligence, advice to anthropologists considering to transition to industry, lastly, he shares some key points of the talk he will be giving at the conference in Bristol. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, friends. We are here today with Julien Cornebise. Hi, Julien. Hi, Corina. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on uh, on this episode, Julien, to speak to one of my personal favorite topics, which is AI and social science. Can you tell me and our listeners a little bit more about you? What has your career path been so far in this space? Well, I've got uh, an undergraduate and master's in computer science, uh, did a second master's in uh, math and a PhD in mathematical statistics, uh, then did a couple of postdocs, uh, US, Canada, UK, and in 2012, I joined a little startup uh, called DeepMind. Um, I spent four years there, I was a sixth researcher there, um, went through the acquisition by Google where we became Google DeepMind. My first two years there on fundamental research, then two years on creating the healthcare team and working with clinicians hand in hand on applying machine learning to healthcare problems. Um, after the Google acquisition and a couple of years there, uh, I decided to leave and started volunteering with Amnesty International, working on their Decode Darfur project, detecting with artificial intelligence destroyed villages in Darfur on satellite imagery. And at the time, I went to the United Nations AI for Good Summit, and I bumped into the co-founders of uh, Element AI, especially Yosha Bengio uh, and uh, Philippe Baudouin, and realized, well, they, it's, they're creating this really exciting company, enterprise software with AI, but doing it in a very non-predatory approach to the AI ecosystem, working with university, having their own research team, and from the day one, wanting to have a full team dedicated to AI for good, that is providing machine learning and AI to those who are fighting the good fights. So I joined at that point, uh, started building that team. Um, the Mon Element AI is mostly based in Montreal, Toronto, and we also have offices in London, Singapore, and Seoul. And in London, we are 13 working precisely with NGOs, academics, international organizations to help solve humanitarian, human rights, and environmental problems, bringing them the tools of uh, machine learning and AI. And it's quite an exciting uh, year and a half uh, building this and delivering on it. So uh, how would you define AI? So artificial intelligence, there's a lot of hype around the term. Mm -hmm. And uh, in short, I would define it as a goal who keeps moving. More precisely, it 
talks, the notion of artificial intelligence creating a being, uh, an artificial being, has its roots in the, the human psyche um, from the dawn of time, essentially. If you look at the Genesis mm. uh, in the Bible, well, God creates a being. If you look at the myth of the golem in the Hebraic uh, literature, uh, this is, well, creating an artificial being. So this notion of artificial intelligence in the 21st century gets takes its fascination from, from this very human nature. In itself, it's a goal. I'm always keen to separate the goal of artificial intelligence, which is keeps on moving. If you, you know, in, in the 90s, you would say, building an algorithm that can build or a computer that can beat Kasparov or the best mm. chess player at chess. Well, that would be real intelligence achieved in 97. And then, oh, well, no, it's not. It's just a software. Same thing with things that your phone do all the time, you know, recognizing your voice, um, being able to auto zoom on a picture, you know, all of these. Oh, 20 years ago, that was AI. And now it's just, you know, it's just my phone. Um, so the, the, the goal post keeps shifting. But the, the current toolkit that powers the latest development in the field is called machine learning, mm-hmm. uh, which is essentially algorithm where instead of telling the computer how to do something, uh, we tell the computer how to learn from examples. Mm-hmm. In its most basic form, that's what machine learning is, and this is what has driven the renewal in artificial intelligence this time around. Um, back in the 90s, it was another co- toolkit. There was work around expert systems, mm-hmm. uh, running around rule systems. This time around, it's it's machine learning, and this is where my, my technical specialty lies. And I try yeah. to separate the two. Could you give an example of, a, of an AI, a good AI for you? Well, uh, I think uh, I think there are many, and it depends whether you use what we currently def- define as AI mm-hmm. or what we defined as AI uh, years ago. Uh, if you look at a pacemaker and the, 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 regla- the regulation of the electric signal in the heart mm-hmm. with the most basic algorithm, well... 50 years ago, that was considered artificial intelligence. Um, nowadays, if you look at an AI that is um, that has a, a, a good impact, uh, there's a lot of work with, uh, with Amnesty International that we have been doing. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to say, well, look, oh, one good <laughs> guy, well, looks at what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> but it's about, you know, looking at how the tools of machine learning are more importantly put in the hands of what good people are doing. And for me, that's the key part, is that technology... There's, there's uh, Kentaro Toyama. He's a, he used to be Mr. Uh, ICT4D, Info, mm. uh, Information and Communication Technologies for Development at Microsoft. And he has written this brilliant book called Geek Heresy, um, and where he makes it very clear that any technology, in our case, we're talking about AI today, um, but any technology is not a solution it is merely an augmentation of human intention and human behavior. Uh, so there's all these incentives for humans to behave in a certain way. And with technology, such as AI, mm-hmm. they will behave even more in that way. Uh, so that's why we can see a lot of AI go, uh, pushing us as a society in terrible directions, which are where the, the incentives regardless of AI, are already aligned. And then there are many efforts to push towards um, putting these tools in the hands of the people who are fighting for the more, well, it's the best incentives. 
Okay. What What about the these these intentions? Are also would you say that they they start already being embedded in the development of the product itself? Or oh yes, actually when 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 I was invited to the to this conference in Bristol and when I, I received your your invitation for this podcast, um, I immediately reached out to my colleague Jason, uh, who in our company uh, at Element AI is a sociologist, mm. and in his team is directing the, uh, he's doing a design research and he's working with, so he's an ethnographer and a qualitative field researcher um, on the one hand and a data scientist on the other hand. And we also have an anthropologist in our team mm. as well as uh, people from psychology, information science and design backgrounds. And together uh, they, they create the team of design research, which is extremely multipli uh, multidisciplinary mm. and is what allows uh, Element to think of AI being centered around a human mm. and being able to work on finding, you know, analyzing the needs, analyzing what are the goals that we can try to solve. And so that is from day one before you put uh, AI to use in a concrete product. And I'm yeah. being careful here to separate the use of AI for a product to solve a problem versus the research of AI, which is developed uh, as in terms of what, how can we push the technical capacity? How can we push the envelope? Mm. And the real excitement is about putting the two together to get really innovative yeah. products. And how how do you how have you experienced the um, the space of anthropology and sociology contributing to this? I hope you and your listeners will forgive uh, my ignorance about the the main subtleties of anthropology and of sociology, but the ability to go and interview and do qualitative field research, uh, understanding what people's goals are, what motivates them, and how. Today, they go about solving these goals when they encounter difficulties and when where they derive meaning. All of this is what I've seen Jason doing, what I've seen some of our design team doing. In some of our work with Amnesty International, um, we have just led a, a workshop on Amnesty, the human rights researcher there, have some view about using tech for some of their goals. And we've had two uh, of our colleagues from the, from the design team going in depth, coming from Toronto and doing a ton of interviews with different stakeholders within uh, the organization at Amnesty and understanding what are their pain points, what are their aspirations. And from that, we rejoined together along with the more technical uh, folks in our team to mm -hmm. see, okay, what is feasible, what that roadmap would look like, where, where the tech would be helpful for these points, where it would not. And this is all driven, you know, by qualitative field researchers. Yeah, yeah. But how did you end up with an anthropologist and a sociologist on your team? <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that's uh, the company, um, Element, we're 500 people. Hmm. Uh, and it's been made from the get-go with this desire to try and be as inclusive as possible hmm. uh, and to really attract people with very diverse backgrounds and to find the skills where they are, not where you expect them to be. And before the podcast, uh, with your audience in mind, I asked uh, my colleague Jason, um, you know, how he got into into what he was doing and what 
what would you recommend to any anthropologist mm. uh, or, or social scientist who want to convince technologies that they are needed? And uh, I'm going to share his, uh, his advice, and I apologize, any mis, uh, miscommunication is entirely my fault. Uh, but he said that essentially when he was, he started first for uh, working for a technology company, he wasn't hired to do field research. Mm. It's just that in the process of doing other work, he used his research skills to find lots of insights from the field that were super, that became very valuable for the people building the technology back at the office. And so when he started doing that, in addition to his regular job, uh, very quickly the, the, the team in that, in that first company, tech company was at, uh, asked him, hey, hold on, this is super valuable. Drop the other stuff we've asked you to do mm-hmm. and, and focus on that, on these research need and on these opportunities. And then please translate them into a prioritized roadmap of the things we need to build. Hmm. So, so his recommendation uh, to to um, anthropologists who would want to go into into tech would be not to expect to have an argument for technologies and expect the, the technologies to make much of a difference there. It's more finding a way into the organization and the organization that works on tech, and then from within show that their skill set actually creates value there. Hmm. And that's essentially how we got uh, this this Trojan horse into hmm. tech at first, and then. Oh, we were we were lucky to hire him uh, at Element AI. Yeah, and he hired the second anthropologist, or how did he go? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think so. Yes, and I don't know if he hired him personally or if it's just that. Well, the fact that there was a team which had this this broad view of mm. uh, of user research attracted another anthropologist. Uh, we also have actually a third uh, a third person. Uh, oh. Uh, a fellow in residence, uh, Nicole, who is an anthropologist and who is working on uh, on ethics uh, at uh, at Element AI, and you know, it's it's personally that's what I look for in a, in yeah. a team. You know, it's people from very different background. It's not a monoculture. It's these diversities that uh, brings all the the really yeah. interesting ideas yeah. up. Yeah, so they're they're multiplying the anthropologists at Element AI. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Before you know it, will be a whole anthropologist uh, tech company. <laughs> yeah, um, Julian, uh, you were mentioning ethics um, right before that, and I wanted to ask you, like, how how do you see that connection between um, ethics and AI? What, how does it work for you? I think it runs pretty deep, and um, in order to answer that, I need to uh, to cover a bit of what. The, the, the AI for Good team uh, at Element is doing because ethics uh, weaves in part through that. So the AI for Good team at Element, we are 13 persons um, whose whole job is to take all the tech we develop as a company, but also as a machine learning or AI community and see how we can put that to help at scale um, the domain experts who are really are the ones who know or at least who have spent their careers trying to find out to solve the problems that as a society and as a, as a species we, we are facing, mm-hmm. whether it be uh, environmental problems, whether it be uh, human rights, uh, whether it be, there's a lot of problems and me as a scientist, as a techie, I might have opinions about these problems, but I don't pretend to know what works for them. But what we do is talking with people who have spent decades trying to, to, to move the needle and they have an idea about pathways to impact, but they might not have an idea of how tech and AI can help. And then we try together to come through finding the low-hanging fruits. And by working closely together, and not just take the data and run, but really closely together on these uh, low-hanging fruit, then we learn how they work, they learn how we work, and from that you've got sparks slowly coming up of, hey, you have an algorithm that does this, but we have a problem very similar here. Hey, could we do that? And essentially, that's how you get to 
um, the bigger and the bigger applications. Mm. Now, the reason I mentioned that in regard to ethics is that at the same time, I mean, as we all know, there are the, the application of artificial intelligence is fraught with ethical challenges like any new technology, even more so in that AI is so, I would say, transformative and can be is so flexible and therefore can affect many different uh, fields of application. Um, but as part of AI for good, there's essentially there's two, two threads. One is about applying AI to good fights, essentially. Uh, and the other is around, I wouldn't say keeping AI in check, but making sure that the, what we do as an AI software company remains ethical and does not fall into all the traps that are very easy to fall on along the way. And not that I didn't say never fall into uh, any trap because that's going to be really hard to do, but at least mm. minimize the number of things we can get wrong. This focus is not just from the AI for good team, it runs throughout the whole team. And for the very same reason that our execs, so we were co-founded by Yoshua Bengio, who recently got the, the Turing Award uh, for his work on, on deep learning and uh, by a series of people close to him. And for the same reason that they put from the get-go an AI for good team, you know, from day one, not waiting until the company is 15 year old and then make a foundation. No, mm -hmm. from day one as a startup, building such a, such a team, yeah. uh, for the same reason, they, from the get-go, try to have a very ethical approach to what we are doing. Mm -hmm. It's not easy, yeah. and there are many different ways to do that and many different ways to fail, but having the, uh, it, it's a concern that runs through AI for Good team, through the design research team, through the product team, through the research team, through the whole company. Yeah. And where, where sociology and anthropologists can come into play. I mean, I'll take a simple example, and that dates back to a year ago. Our CEO uh, wanted precisely to start, you know, advance the discussion around our internal ethics. And well, the first thing to ask is, where are we right now? Where within the different teams, what is the different thinking around ethics? What are our blind spots? What are? And Jason and I uh, started working on that, and he brought, along with his colleague uh, Satsuko, they brought their incredible experience of field research to go throughout the company, speak with people in each and every part of the company and speak with them. What are your concerns about ethics? What are your, do you have any concerns about what you're doing? What do you foresee could go wrong? What do you think we're doing right now mm -hmm. that is already helpful in that sense? What should we amplify? You know, collecting this global, uh, global knowledge because a company mm -hmm. is essentially a bunch of humans and you've got all these brains together and here, the, the sociology and, and anthropology field and this field research brought all these ideas together. Uh, Julian, just a side question. How do you define what is good? I mean, I wish it were just a side question, but it's actually very central when you have a team that's called AI for good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, 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 I mean, the, the simple answer is I don't. Uh, I, in, in what I mean by that is... Yes, there is a tendency in tech and in every movie, you know, there's this, this crazy researcher who says, you know, Iron Man, I'm going to define what is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's happened a few times in the past from technologies or from politicians or from, that's not quite gone well, has it? Uh, so here, the definition of good first is also extremely culture dependent. What one culture considers good might be considered really weird from another culture. So trying to say, you know, set into this work, and if I were to say, well, let's first, you know, 
decompose and define what is good uh, and find a universal set of values, well, this is something I'm really not equipped for. And the little knowledge of philosophy I have, which is not much, admittedly, mm -hmm. uh, makes me makes me see that this is a, a doomed endeavor. Mm -hmm. So instead, the way we've set the team is to say, look, I know that I have a Western bias. Hey, after all, I'm a white male in London. Um, so I'm aware of that bias. I'm not aware of how deep it runs. So I'm going to try and surround myself with as many people who have different backgrounds as possible. I'm going to work hard to try and, and broaden my view. But I also acknowledge that I'm going to have this bias. Whether it be conscious or unconscious, I'm always going to have it. So working with that, um, how do I try and focus on some causes which either can be seen you know, as clearly good by some people who share the same biases as me, or will be seen as, meh, why do you even care by people with very different set of values? Mm. Um, that is a bit of a coward uh, way to go, uh, but it does allow to make headway without necessarily falling into, um, I would say, massive debates or politics about, oh, yeah, this is good or this is bad. Now, that's the first way, and that's how I set up the team, and that was, you know, a year and a half ago. But then... Because I have this, this privilege to be working with, with domain experts, human rights experts, human rights watchers, amnesty, uh, environmental experts, you know, these are people who have spent decades trying to tackle what is good and, and what is bad and who have even more notion of these nuances. Uh, so there, there has been big endeavors such as the United Nations uh, uh, Sustainable Development Goals and before that the, the Millennium Goals, which have tried to loop look at the different things that are good, or at least what we try to achieve as a species that are, let's say, unifying enough to get many people behind it and who can be quantified in a way. They're not perfect. They can even be very vague. Um, and that's why you have to work with people who know how to navigate them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think this kind of existing framework, which has been defi defined with massive consultation of domain experts and of populations, is in the end what defines good. It's not a tech guy who's going to define what it is. Yeah. At best, a tech guy will follow what has been good and maybe point some technical ways to go forward or some limitations when, oh, this tech is changing here what we've been meaning by good. We need to mm. be made a bit more precise. How do we do that? Yeah. And that's how I, I define it. That is, I don't. I follow what has been defined as much as I can understand it by, by society and by people who know best. Wow, that's fascinating. I'd, I'd love to dive deeper actually into the company itself, but um, I'm, I'm pretty aware of your time and, and actually the main topic of our talk, which is to to speak also a little bit to the conference in Bristol uh, focused on technology and anthropology um, happening on the 3rd of October, where you will be one of the awesome speakers. <laughs> Can you share a little bit about the topic that you will be speaking to at the conference and maybe also some expectations that you have from the people that would be in the audience? Yes, of course. Uh, so unsurprisingly, <laughs> my talk will be around uh, AI for good uh, with a question mark because precisely there are so many questions around how to do AI for good and sharing some of the some of the experience that along the way I've been able to have in applying AI and putting it to the service of uh, those who have been, uh, well, who, who know essentially what they're doing <laughs> um, better, than, better than I would. Through that, uh, the, I'll give a few examples of work we've done with uh, that I've been privileged doing both individually and now with a team at Element that I've been doing with Amnesty International. 
uh, and with uh, uh, human rights experts, which is, I don't want to give the impression that the only thing we do, this is where we start, because that's where I happen to have uh, uh, great contacts. Uh, but this is, you know, this is only a beginning. Um, and more, more importantly, beyond that, the discussion that I would like to generate and from which I would so much love to hear from anthropologists, uh, and that's why I hope most of the talking on that conference will be done by the audience rather than by me, is how to make sure that the relatively scarce talent in artificial intelligence can be put the best to so well helping solve or in contributing to work towards solving some of the main challenges we face as a, as a society. Uh, what I mean by that, uh, and some colleagues at Element just recently released the, the talent report, the AI talent report, mm. where they estimate that there's something like, I don't want to get the number wrong, and I apologize to them if I did, um, but around 30,000 AI experts in the world, um, which is relatively small given the appetite for them. And a lot of these uh, AI experts, machine learning experts, are in companies who can afford to pay them. Mm. Uh, and there is a big concentration and there's been a race to talent. And, you know, the same way that, well, let me put it this way. There is this one of the early employees at Facebook who was interviewed a few years back and said, some of the best technical minds in my generation are spending their days on finding how to get people to click on ads. Mm. And this is really sad. Um, and that's kind of the question that I'm trying to, let's say, advance a little is, can we show to people who have technical skills that there is more, I mean, can we actually build rather than show, can we build a way for them to use their skills in a sustained way towards these challenges that we need to solve as humans? Mm. I'm trying through the, through the talk I'm going to give and the examples and the discussion, trying to see how we can come to more ways for all these employees to, and for all the companies who have these employees, to put them to the task and to use, you know, we're all looking for purpose more and more. I mean, 15 years ago, you would go to a company because they were, oh, there's free massage and there's free food. Mm. Great. And there's bean bags. Well, now, you know, the, the world has moved and, and 20 years forward, now we're looking at, okay, how do I find a purpose? So if we can f show to different companies that their employees demand to be working on meaningful applications uh, and that it is in the interest of these companies to do so, well, then suddenly we could tap into a much more talent than has been applied to these problems. Um, and that's that's kind of what we're, we're trying to, to do here at Telemann is showing that there's such a way. Um, and we're starting to see some of that. I mean, you've seen, and as anthropologists, I would love to hear from the audience at, at, mm -hmm. uh, at Bristol about how they analyze that. But you have seen the walks out at Google. Mm -hmm. You have seen the Facebook employees writing open letters and Microsoft employees writing open letters, again, Microsoft bidding on some uh, military contracts. You've seen mm -hmm. Google having to pull from the same contract, to pull out of the same contracts, following protests by their employees. Um, we're, we're starting to see this demand. There was a fantastic article in October last year in the New York Times uh, looking at tech employees demand to know what they're working on will be used for. Mm. And from a, from a dynamic point of view and, and an organization of society and, and of human activity, I think this is quite a unique moment where there is mm. scarce talent 
strong desire for values, if we can give an echo to this strong desire and show some path to act on this desire for values, I think we have a chance, and maybe I'm completely utopic, but maybe we have a chance to advance and change things. Mm. What do you think prevents those, those large corporations from seeing that right now? Well, incentives do not change overnight. And there is a way to do, uh, to, to do business um, that currently is around, okay, we are a company, you are set up as an as a organism mm. uh, to optimize for profit. And so you need what I'm observing. And here I'm venturing way beyond my, cap- my, my competence mm. as a scientist. Um, but if we can show that, well, actually, you can maximize your profit uh, by being socially responsible mm. and not just in the term of a corporate social responsibility report that you wave nicely at the end of the year, but actually putting your talent to work. And well, if we can show that this is something that shareholders care about, because this is something that the scarce talent cares about mm. and because it's something that actually does good eventually f- for your company then well we will get more companies to do that and we're not we need more examples of such successes um, to to be or be able to convince other other big organizations yeah and, and do you do you think social science can play a role in that definitely I mean the study of the the study of uh, the dynamics of organization uh, and, and of societies is exactly where we can find inspiration. I mean, I realize this, there is a language barrier the same way that if, you, if, a, social, if a social scientist sorry, mm. opens a machine learning paper and finds a theorem in it, it's going to be really hard to read. Yeah. Uh, the, the same is true, so the converse is also true. Um, but some of the most uh, fascinating books I've, I've been reading recently uh, are by historians. If you look at Thomas Piketty, Capital in the 21st Century, or if you um, look at the, the excellent book uh, Utopia for, Rea- uh, for Realists by the historian, actually he's based in Amsterdam, I believe in the Netherlands, um, who has been, uh, whose video went viral at Davos um, mm-hmm. on uh, using taxes, taxes, taxes to be able to make the, the social contract uh, better and the safety net better to really unleash human creativity. You know, these are some fantastically interesting ideas and they come, they do not come from tech. They come from sociology, from history, uh, and they are what will help structure how we want to do tech. I'm, um, I'm fascinated by, by all those, those things that you're saying also because I'm um, actually at the tail end of a project now and writing a paper myself on uh, building algorithms together with a oh, da- data scientist and specialize in artificial intelligence. And uh, it takes me back oh, fantastic. to... Fantastic. Would you send me a draft? <laughs> yeah, sure. When it's when it's ready, I, I can. Uh, because the, the thing that we're focusing on and you know the angle that we're speaking to, it's, it's basically all of these assumptions that that are built within algorithms when it comes to the agency of the human factors, as they are called, you know, and, you know, how, and, and from the perspective of, 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 of him as a data scientist, he struggles to, how do you deal with the messiness of, of human, um, human life? How, how do you code that when the code itself forces you to, to take down such a binary route, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, so kind of like these these are the these are the questions that we're trying to write and, and speak to uh, when the whole um, language and the ideology around building um, technology relies on very sharp categorization 
how do you uh, then make space for um, for flexibility, for porousness, for um, the contradictions of human choices in a way that speaks more directly to how life actually is, you know? So... <laughs> Oh wow, that's that is fascinating. Are you going to speak about that in Bristol? Yeah, I might I might have a pechakucha on this particular topic, but oh, it, but since it's just uh, 10 minutes, I'm not sure if we're going to go into the argument uh, very deeply, but um, but yeah, that that's what we want to speak to because Uh, the project that we worked together on um, had to do with an algorithm that was developed in the aviation space, um, mm -hmm. who is also a space extremely uh, focused on safety and compliance and, and a space where the human, more often than not, is seen as a liability rather than mm -hmm. an asset, which makes um, artificially intelligent algorithms very difficult to build Uh, in a way that they are useful yeah. because because the way you are building them you're already building them with a pro with a premise that that keeps them very far away from reality so what mm -hmm. they learn is actually not useful you know so mm -hmm. they end up not they end up failing the people that they're supposed to help the algorithm because it's built on assumptions and on premises that are very far away from reality but you know how do you How do you build on different premises? That's that's kind of like the the question that we're trying to speak to. Mm -hmm. But yeah, now I'm gonna I'm going very <laughs> on a to completely different yeah. tangent. But um, oh, it's fantastic! It's fantastic. I think I think and I think making sense of society and how we learn. I mean, especially as machine learning comes more and more, trying to learn from data that has been recorded as part of uh, of uh, society's daily life. Uh, there is a risk of, of it capturing the same biases that are already present in our society. I mean, Christiane Lum, uh, she's a, a good friend and she's the lead statistician at the Human Rights Data Analysis Group, uh, HRDAG. Mm. And she did this fantastic work on uh, predictive policing and mm. showing how these, these mechanisms of predicting policing and these data science-based algorithms on trying to predict where crime will happen Um, well, actually completely biased because the data uh, that is fed to it is completely biased. I mean, she would go in, in and you can find a lot of, about her online uh, and about her work, most importantly. Um, you can she goes in much more detail and re-implemented some of the algorithms that are being sold to, to, to police agencies around the world. Yeah. And, and what is, what you know, what, okay, I could go all out, oh my God, this is terrible. Uh, mm -hmm. And yes, it is. But at the same time, it makes me, extremely proud to see that there are data scientists and machine learners and who look at that yeah. and point and say, well, okay, this one we really got wrong. Let's fix. Let's find better ways to use machine learning for society. Yeah. And for me, this is what I see as really exciting, that there are, there are these tools here by using it not in isolation, but as part of a complex weave of skills from all walks of mm -hmm. life and all disciplines we have a chance to get it right yeah, and yeah. keep trying, cutting it when we get it wrong, stopping it until we get it right. I think that is uh, that is extremely exciting. I'm so so much looking forward to this conference in Bristol. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to it as well and to hopefully meet you there. And for those of our listeners that um, are considering to come, please do. <laughs> and uh, we will put more details about Julian's profile um, in the show notes and... Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to meet you there, Julian. And thank you so much again for, for the opportunity. Well, thanks for having me again. And uh, thanks for, uh, for, for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening, everyone. 
Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations. Thank you.